This podcast is supported by Bank Australia, Australia's first customer-owned bank. Bank Australia invests 4% of its after-tax profits in projects that benefit people, our communities and the planet. To find out more, go to bankost.com.au, where you bank every day makes a difference. understand that every time you have to create a piece somewhere you have to speak to someone that you almost hate in the beginning of the conversation. Hi, I'm Jane Nethercote from Dumbo Feather magazine and you're listening to the Dumbo Feather podcast, a monthly series where we chat with inspiring, thought-provoking guests who are doing their bit to make the world better. Recently our publisher Barry Liberman caught up with Hella Thorning-Schmidt, the former Prime Minister of Denmark. And when we say caught up, we mean had a deep, wide-ranging conversation for an event with the School of Life and Save the Children. While Helen never saw herself going into politics, the astute observer would have noted a leader in the making. At age 12, she started an anti-bullying campaign at her school, spurred by an innate sense of justice. It seems fitting then that she is now CEO of Save the Children International, a role that's all about standing up for children and giving them a voice. We loved hearing from Hella about keeping it real, deciding to be courageous, and why we need to keep having difficult conversations with each other. Hella, it's such an honour to sit with you today. It's great to be here. Thank you for coming. I read that you have this mantra, courage creates courage. What does that mean? What do you mean by that? Courage creates courage. Yeah, what is that about? Um, (laughs) It is basically about when I was young, went to university, and you know how you were in university and you think everyone is extremely clever uh, when you enter university. Uh, And I went into student politics where people are very clever, or at least they think they are, and they speak in a way that uh, they think sounds very clever. And I remember the first time in a big student meeting, just a bit like this, where you had to stand up and actually say something. And I was so nervous. I mean, now my heart was beating, my stomach was aching, and I was really nervous. But then I looked round a lot of those people, a lot of them guys, and they did their long speeches, and I said, okay, it might not be better when they are saying these people, but it will be almost just as good. Um, And I did it, I spoke, uh, and I did it many times after that where I was still nervous, but then suddenly it stops. Suddenly you stop being nervous, and you're not so worried, even if you do say something that doesn't sound fantastic, you get over it. Um, And you also start thinking, what is the worst thing that can happen if it doesn't sound great if you're speaking in public or whatever? And I think that courage that you have the first time you're speaking um, and keep doing it actually creates the courage to do the next thing that is even more difficult and then the next thing that is even more challenging. So I think that is what I mean by if you decide that you want to be courageous then it will follow you and help you uh, the rest of your life. And also keep thinking what is actually the worst thing that can happen um, when you do something, and often it's not that bad. That's true, and it's such an amazing thing you say about deciding to be courageous. Yeah, and being pushing yourself. I think you also have to push. I, I know that everyone in this room have had that feeling that you have to push yourself to speak up or do something, or, or can I be bothered, and then you do it. 
And that is actually courage. I don't consider, I consider myself courageous, but I meet some people who are like fantastically courageous. I mean, these are people who are fleeing their homes and have to walk five days with their children to get to a place where they hope they can get a better life. That's courage, that's real courage. So I don't want to mix my uh, courage up with, with other people's real courage. Uh, Malala, who speaks up after she's been, yeah, they tried to murder her because she wanted to go to school and she keeps speaking up. That is real uh, courage. So I don't want to mix it up with that. But I think we can all take inspiration from other people's courage and use it in our daily life. Yeah, I, that's such a beautiful example. And that perspective is so essential because we rarely have it when we get stuck in the mire of our lives. Yeah. I was in a meeting the other day where exactly that happened. Someone said, yes, but it's really hard to change what we had planned that we were going to do. Yeah. And I said, hard is walking across the Sudan barefoot with four yeah. children. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's perspective on what's difficult. You're such a, a remarkable leader in the world. You're 10 years as the leader of your party. Such an impressive life, mother of two beautiful girls, um, married to a now British MP. Very impressive uh, life, which sounds like it's been grounded and uh, full of great moral compass and, and moral values. But there was a journey there that's quite interesting, and we spoke briefly the other day, that you came from an unremarkable context, your childhood. Yeah, I come from a very normal background and I think that's a message I want to send. Um, again, I don't consider my journey as so extraordinary. I'm Danish and in Denmark it is actually possible to, to go from not having much and then becoming prime minister in my case. But I do say it because I think everyone has got something that they might have to break free from. Uh, and again, I admire much more um, girls that break free and insist they want an education in a family where there hasn't been education for girls in generations. And, and incidents like that, girls that say, I'm not, I'm not going to marry this guy, I'm 15 and I want an education. So that is true courage. But talking about um, myself, it is true that um, you often think of politicians that with a long background in politics, I knew no politicians. I don't, didn't know anyone who was member of the party that I joined, which is the Social Democratic Party of Denmark. And I come from a divorce background, the wrong side of uh, Copenhagen. Uh, so is there a wrong side of Copenhagen? Yeah, there is. <laughs> there is, actually. There is a wrong side of Copenhagen. To the rest of us, uh, it's all the right side. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but if you say to a Dane, the south of Copenhagen is where they would think it's the wrong side of Copenhagen. So you, yes, I do. Uh, but that's also the Danish system that if you, are, <clears throat> if you work hard enough, you can get an education, you can get into the best universities. There will be those opportunities if you work hard enough. But I also think it's a story about that you don't have to have all the knowledge about how it is done in politics to go mm. into politics. And I actually think perhaps that's something that everyone can use, that you don't have to know all about what everything is. You can choose something different. And I admire people who choose to live their own life. There's an interesting part of your story in your childhood that I think is so fascinating and such a marker of where you were heading. At the age of 12, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you seemed very aware of power at a young age, because at the age I wonder of what's coming now. Uh, <laughs> at the age of 12, you began an anti-bullying campaign. Yeah. True? Yeah, 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 it's true, it's true. And so, 
How did that come about and how were you aware of that? And, and I actually feel I always had a very, very strong fee uh, feeling of, of, of justice and what was right and what was wrong, maybe being quite annoying uh, when I was a child uh, because I really felt this is right, this is wrong uh, and, and I wrote long essays about how we should abolish um, uh, any form of violence against children, also uh, parents' right to, uh, to hit their or uh, slap their children. Uh, so I was very strong political about that. Um, it's funny that I ended up being fighting against that now as well. But that was one of my first notions of being political. I was very feminist, which I still am. Mm. Uh, I re listened to all those songs from the, from the 70s, uh, fighting for women's rights. I don't know the songs. Can you sing the songs? No, <laughs> maybe later, maybe later. <laughs> um, we'll send the playlist Yeah, out. exactly. So I was very feminist as well. I just had a feeling for what was right and what was wrong. So in my school, I started to, I didn't think the school did enough about bullying. Hmm. So I asked them, to, could we do more? And it's also become, I come from a background, my mum and my dad, my, they, they kept saying to me, if I came home complaining, so what, this is wrong and we should be changing that. And they just said, okay, try to do it. Hmm. Try to make a change, try to speak up and try to make a change, talk to the teachers, try to speak to your, uh, the school and see what can happen. And the good thing is that it worked. Yeah. And I think that's, that's why I'm such a strong believer that you actually have to listen to children now. I mean, that is what I work with, say the children strongly believe that children have a voice. Uh, even though they're small, they will often say things about their own lives or their family's lives or their siblings' lives that is really, really important. And if you listen to children, you will often find a strong view. We tend to not do that because children are still just children in many, many uh, countries, societies, communities, and we have to listen to children. And I had the good fortune that someone actually listened to like a really annoying 12-year-old who came and said, uh, we should do this, and that's very powerful. It's remarkable why you were talking. I was having a sort of shame moment thinking about how my children are all very vocal, um, but just that moment, you know, for an adult, so many adults are disempowered. The easiest person to take advantage of is the child when you feel disempowered at the end of the day. Just yeah. using a moderate example of being tired at the end of the day, raising your voice and maybe threatening, my kids will say, stop threatening me. Yeah. <laughs> so annoying, isn't and it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so then yeah. it's... Uh, They're so empowered, these children. They will speak to you. You shouldn't be speaking to me like this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so your annoying. fault. No. Yeah. yeah, it's your fault. Um, yeah. So, but it is great and it is true and it does take an enormous amount of sophistication. But people to tend to think that if you give children a voice, they will be cheeky and mm. irresponsible and they will just do what they want. My experience in, in being a child that had a voice as well in my family uh, and also trying to raise my own children, giving them a voice and having respect for them, I strongly feel that if I have respect for a child, listens to a child and let that child speak her opinion, then she there's a much bigger, bigger chance that she'll have a similar respect for me and let me express my views uh, and actually listen to my views. People often end up shouting in families, and trust me, we do that in my family as well. <laughs> but I do think you can, you can actually find a tone of respect in a family where children are respected and that makes them simply nicer company than if you, I mean, do all kinds of punishment structures for your power children dynamics. and uh, power dynamics and say, I'm the adult, I can decide what you should be doing. 
I don't mind being an adult, and I think adults should be ab adults and show our values, but you don't have to put it into a power relationship mm. always with children, and a lot of adults do. Go, go around your supermarket, local supermarket, and see how adults speak to children sometimes. It's not always good. Mm. I was just thinking about, of course, how powerful modelling is. Modelling not just for children, but yeah. modelling for so adults. Powerful, yeah. And um, how powerful it is to have a thoughtful, feeling, moderate uh, leadership that we can all look to, because if you can't see it, you can't be it. Mm. And with a deterioration of modelling, there's a deterioration in society. Yeah. Look at sometimes how Trump exactly. talks about his opponents and uh, how politicians talk about each other. Uh, I don't know so much about the, the conversation, the political conversation here, but I'm sure that takes place that, I mean, there's quite a hard tone here as well sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes politicians, they speak to each other in a way, if I was, ch I was children in a classroom, you would not accept that way of speaking to each other. Yeah. And what kind of models and example are they setting for children? I actually think politicians should think about how to speak to each other in a heated conversation yeah. and not tr have a bullying way of talking to each other. There's too much bullying in politics. Uh, and of course it has an impact on how, how, what our children see and how they react. So there's this remarkable 12-year-old who finds a voice and uh, acts on behalf of the disempowered. How did you get from there into a life in politics? Um, I don't know. I mean, I didn't mean to go into politics. Um, I really didn't mean to go into politics. I wanted to study all kinds of different things. I was interested in a number of things. Um, when I was a child, I was doing a lot of singing and dancing. Perhaps maybe I should go on the stage, I thought. <laughs> Good, probably good I didn't do that. Um, so I wanted to do everything. Um, but then I just got involved, I started political science university, got involved in, in things and one day, it was actually funny because first before I stood for the national parliament, I stood for the European parliament. And um, it was funny because uh, they needed someone on the list, uh, sort of a youngish uh, woman. Um, so they decided to ask me and my first thought was, God, I, I can't do that, and what mm. if, and stuff. Then I thought, heck, I know more about Europe than a lot of these guys, because I've been working in Europe, I studied, uh, I did a European master's degree, so I, I felt suddenly, I, can, I don't know about, more about this than many of these guys, and I'll just try to stand. Got very low down on the list, but I actually got myself elected, because in Denmark, it's the it's number of votes you get that makes makes a difference to whether you get elected or not. Um, so, <laughs> Remarkable. Yeah, but actually the, the, all the names are on the list and if you get more, you jump, you jump the queue. So that was how I got elected. So that's just an example of, again, just try, saying, I'll just go for it, try, see what happens. Mm. Uh, so that was my way into politics. So, so from a young age, you saw power could corrupt and destroy people or it could mobilise them to action. Were you ever afraid or intimidated by entering into the political arena and how it might change you? Yes, very much so. Um, very much so, uh, because you do think, look at politicians, perhaps more of the older generation, mm. and there's a strong feeling when you think about the politicians that you met or heard of or read about, that they change a lot on that journey. And that power can become very, very difficult to live with. Um, and when I got elected leader, I said to the people who were around me that, uh, that evening, I said, if I become really 
a different person you have to tell me. Um, because power can really change a person. And also, so many people in power, they surround themselves with uh, people who say yes to them. They never, someone who'd never contradiction or say, that sounded really weird what you were saying, or that wasn't very good, or it sounded quite stupid, or that's not true what you were saying. Mm. You have to say it in a different way. Uh, people who don't tell you. And if you look at the people who are in power now, who actually seem to have gone a bit wrong, um, you look at uh, President Assad, who I met before, he was turned wow. out to be a, a dictator. He seemed quite normal uh, back then. Putin didn't start it as a person who wanted to have all that power that he has now. So people change a lot in politics. Uh, I don't think. What that, is it? I think it's is it being around, called your it's, a being, it's being annoyed that things can't get done the way you want them, which mm. is really annoying. Mm. It is, I mean, that is annoying. You are the prime minister, and you say, why can't we just do this? Then you have to get your coalition together. You have to get a majority in the parliament. You have to negotiate. You have to listen to everything they have to say. It is very, very tiring. Yeah, um, yeah and it's boring. That's and it's boring. sometimes so, it's boring. It's very time consuming. You say, oh, we, we know where we're going. We're going from A to B. This is how we should be doing it. Why can't I just get a majority? Mm. But it doesn't work like that in democracies. You sort of have to listen to people. And at the end of the day, you also know maybe it's better that decisions are well-founded in the parliament and thus in the, in the public. But I think these people, they just end up thinking that their road or their path, their roadmap is so excellent that it would be better if everyone could just follow that uh, and then they react. Um, and everyone who goes into power have to be very careful of recognizing, even if it's a small country, even you're in a coalition government, that with power comes a lot of responsibility of trying to behave as a normal person and uphold your really true values about who you are and who other people are and get yourself down to earth and do normal things at the same time. People are always so shocked. I mean, this is Denmark, so you go to the shops and you do your things and you actually go to the dentist, you do stuff in Denmark when you're prime minister. And people are always saying, what are you doing here? <laughs> well, I'm buying my milk and my cereal <laughs> and my eggs and, and stuff. And you would stand in the queue and get chatting to people and they would often, often ask that question. Did you really stand in a queue? Yeah. Don't you prime minister do that here? I think they do. Do they not? No? No? <laughs> Did, did Julia Gillard not stand in a queue? She might have stood in a queue. The post office or at the doctor's or... Yeah. Well, it's I not widely reported. No. <laughs> um, so it, it obviously took a lot of courage and a lot of leaning in and stepping yeah. up to become Prime Minister. Did you ever doubt your worthiness? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, th I had many times where I thought, God, this is too difficult and I don't know how, how to do this. And absolutely. Um, I, I never doubted that I was as good as the next guy. Hmm. And I think that's quite important that you shouldn't think that you're so great that all problems or that there are no challenges. I often felt that challenge. I still feel that challenges in, in what I'm doing now, certainly. Um, and I really feel people often ask me, do, do you make mistakes? Yeah. Everyone makes mistakes, and the most important thing about making mistakes, and that goes for all of us, whatever job or calling or whatever we are doing, as a parent, yeah. you make mistakes. Um, and the most important is to be honest about it and say, God, I didn't handle that situation particularly well. Uh, that two-year-old that wouldn't get dressed and I start shouting at her instead of just talking to her. Everyone makes mistakes. 
And if you can't connect with your own mistakes, you can't somehow evaluate yourself and move on. So I really strongly believe that you should connect with your own mistakes, say, that was really great. That wasn't your best moment. Mm -hmm. um, and then try to, uh, try to think about what happened, but also then move on. I think one of the things that I have got is that I've got a memory of a dog. Uh, and, and that means I don't, I don't go back to things a lot. I don't think about them again and again and again uh, and regret things that you can't change. And I think that's also part of being courageous, that you actually plough through and get things done. As Prime Minister, what, what were you most proud of achieving? Um, I was most proud. We, I took over as Prime Minister. This has happened in many countries. I took over as Prime Minister in 2011. Uh, we were just, I mean, the economic crisis had really been hard on a lot of European countries and my own uh, country. Uh, and basically my, my thinking was, I need to get this country through this economic crisis and keep what we think is best about Denmark <laughs> intact. And in Denmark, we feel it's the welfare state. Uh, we feel it's the equality. We feel is that everyone gets a chance to come back into employment if, if they, for some reason, have, uh, have fallen out of, uh, of employment. So we feel that it's like everyone gets another chance. Uh, and there is a safety net if you fall. So I wanted to reform, but I wanted to keep the welfare state intact. I strongly believe that you can have a market economy, but you can combine it with uh, if you have the right regulation, you can combine it with uh, doing your bit towards climate change, doing your bit towards uh, the poorest countries in the world, doing your bit to making the market economy more fair, basically. That is my political position summed up in a very short uh, space. So I felt if we can come out of this crisis and still have our uh, welfare state <coughs> intact, our social market economy intact, then I would be very proud. And when, we, when I left, as Prime Minister, we had changed all figures. Employment was up, um, child poverty was, was down, yeah. uh, productivity was up, all economic figures had gone in the right direction. And I felt, okay, we are now in a situation where we will continue, be able to continue to have the society that we really want in this country. And that was a very good thing. And that brings me, actually, <laughs> I don't know if everyone, if it, if it, did anyone see the, the meme that went out on the internet and on Instagram of Therese May, I can't remember who she was sitting with, and it, the, the front page of a British newspaper said Brexit versus Lexit, because it was a picture of their legs yeah. crossed on stage. <laughs> and there was such outrage and fury <clears throat> that these two powerful female world yeah. leaders were having that kind of <clears throat> a headline in a major British it paper. Is, it's stupid. So, how do we encourage more good people and women into politics? Does the system have to change? Um, I actually when think, that when yeah. that is what you're no no, but I think women do get a hard time in politics, and I I, I, I do think that's the case. I had exactly the same picture to, uh, uh, of me and my coalition partner taken where our legs for no reason whatsoever. So. Uh, they're just legs, so it's a thing. Um, Apparently. And women have got legs, and sometimes they're out when they wear a dress. Remarkable. Uh, <laughs> um, so I think it's, a, it's, a, it's a, just a very, very good and actually quite funny example of how women are treated different in the, um, in the public sphere. I mean, they are. I had a meeting with Penny Wonglet yesterday, 
Um, and uh, she was saying the figures she had, of course, I can't remember them, but, but she had actually figures say, telling how many children had gone into politics that somehow had death threats to them, threats of rape, threats of killing them or they're killing their children. And the numbers are well into the 60s and 70s. Of women going into politics. Yeah, of women yeah. in politics. And that's not from their colleagues. That's something that happens on the internet. So women have to sit back, particularly young women, they have to sit back and think, can I be bothered with that? Yeah. Can I be bothered with that kind of abuse, death threats and uh, sexual abuse uh, when I open uh, my Twitter account? Is that something I can be bothered with? So I think we have to carry this conversation out and that's why I've started talking about it more because we have to have a conversation about how men and women are treated in, in politics. So do you, there's a slightly different question on the same topic. Do you think there's a conversation to be had about masculine and feminine power? Um, men are born to their power. And the power powered person, the person with power in a corporation, in politics, in anything, is a man. We all know that. So women have to find their way in power. And I think that actually have a different expression than when men are in power. But on the other hand, I don't feel that was particularly... F I had used my power in a different way than uh, a lot of men would have done. Uh, I had the same conversations with people. I had the same long conversation about, can we get a majority for this? Negotiations, hard negotiations, shouting, being friendly, all those things. That wasn't different. Uh, from if I had uh, been, uh, been a man. But I, th I do think that the di big difference is how the world sees mm. women and men in power. And I always felt it was actually harder for a woman to become president in the United States than it was for even a black guy. Mm. Um, and uh, that shows that that glass ceiling is a little bit thicker uh, and gender is perhaps the most defining uh, part of... Um, what chances you have in politics. So I think your move from being Prime Minister of one of the most revered countries in the world um, and, and being in this, the centre of power to taking the position as CEO of Save the Children mm. is the least cynical thing you could have possibly done on exiting office. And I think it says a, a lot about Thank who you, you are as Thank a person. You. I feel very, very lucky that I, I had the opportunity to work with that amazing organisation. I don't know how many of you know Save the Children. I'll give you a short, uh, tell you a little bit about who we are. Save the Children was started in 1919 by an English woman called Eglantine Jeb. This is 1919. Women don't even have the right to vote at this uh, stage. She was so provoked um, by what had happened to the children after the First World War. I mean, children in Europe were starving. Uh, they lived in, the, in situations, they've seen things that children should never to, uh, should have seen, and they lived in a way that where, how children should never live. And she wanted to give children special rights in general, but also in war. So she traveled through Europe, got to the Pope as well, uh, who she spoke to, um, and really said, Chil children need to have, have rights. So she was part of creating 1924, uh, the first uh, convention of, of the right of the child, and that is the, the convention now that most of us have signed on to, most countries have signed on to the rights of the child, so we're very, very proud of how we started. And we're actually doing the same thing now. We're still fighting for children's rights, and also the refugee children, 
And we basically have three things. All children should not die from a disease that we could have prevented before they turn five. Uh, we should do better than that, and it is possible. All children should have right to quality education, and all children should live without violence, be protected. That is what we fight for, those three things. And we want to have a clear focus on the most deprived children. Who are the most deprived children today? Well, they're often poor children, and that's in every community. In everywhere in the world, there are poor children. In Denmark, in Australia, everywhere there are poor children. But what is striking is that they're not only poor, a lot of the most deprived children, they have a cocktail, a toxic cocktail of being poor, but also discriminated against. So discrimination is some, always in there, and it is in this country as, as well. I visited uh, an Aboriginal community in Seduna uh, two days back, and it's very clear that this is their problem as well. And that is the same everywhere in the world. So we want to put a spotlight on that and help those children. That is basically what we do. And aren't we all luckier for it? I think I'm, I'm reflecting on how the language, the public language around children has shifted in the last 10 years, yeah. where refugees seeking asylum became aliens. Mm. How do we manage the concerns of national security to open our minds and hearts to the welcome of refugees? We have to find solutions in the middle. So first of all, it's important for me to say that governments do have the right to protect their borders. They have the right to look at homeland security, um, national security, they have the right to look at that. But it's also important to have a conversation where refugees do not only become 2,000 people, but we actually remember these are people with a name and a face and a family and love and aspirations and a sense of humor and a sense of, I mean, everything. We have to remember they're just people. And as soon as we dehumanize people and just call them a number, it is easier to talk about those people in a way where it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel right anymore. So I feel we have to combine those things into a political solution. It is possible, I feel, to do that. Uh, it's not easy because if you start saying, for example, countries have the right to protect their borders, there'll probably be some in this room who say, what is she saying? Is that really true? Or is that not very right-wing to say that? Um, but you have to try and combine those issues and find uh, sensible solutions. And for example, for Australia, I would never suggest that Australia could just could solve all refugee problems in the world. No, you can't. But it's always about just taking, taking your part of the problem and just saying, what is our fair share of this, uh, of this problem? You are, uh, we are a very wealthy nation. Same goes for my own country and European nations in general, wealthy nations have a bigger responsibility. And it's again this back to great power and wealth comes more responsibility. I think that's where the conversation should be. But it's a very, very difficult conversation because everything about immigration and asylum seekers, it's top of people's mind. It changes the vote in each country. Uh, and it's also very sensitive and it's about real people. So it's very, very difficult. But I would say there are, there are solutions even to that. So that, that brings me to a combination of courage and power. And I think what you're talking about, talking about the moderate practical centre, it's a lovely place that I would like to return to. <laughs> um, courage has to come from deep conviction, but you also have to listen in order to lead. That's a really difficult thing to do to both 
have conviction and want to charge ahead with your vision and also hold the space for listening. And I think that's where we've come to our extreme positions. Yeah. And this space in the middle requires listening. How have you done it? I, I think listening is a very important thing. And, and what does it mean to listen? Well, to listen means that you're a little bit cur curious, that you actually want to hear what is her side of the story. How would they explain this? And I feel that one of the things that happens in a very polarized debate, like they, for example, had in the States between Clinton and Trump, that they completely had stopped listening to each other, completely trying to understand and be curious about the Trump voters, for example. People saying to me afterwards, oh, we didn't know there were so many racist or nationalists in the US, all those people who voted for Trump. They're not. There's so many good people that voted for Trump. Good people with good values, compassionate people, people who are nice to their children, who have good family life. They're good people that voted for Trump. And I know some of those people, they're good people. And if we don't recognize that and have a conversation and just say they have nothing good to, to offer, then we won't be able to find good solutions. And I feel that the left wing has actually done that as much as the right wing. Uh, everyone is equally guilty uh, in that. And I'm so tired of it. Yeah. I'm so tired of, of putting a label on other people. That's why you talk about the populist vote. Who are those populists? They're just normal people who voted for that guy that they thought could make a difference. Nothing can change. And particularly the cause that I'm fighting for now, children's rights and children's protection, if we don't have that deep conversation and try to understand where people are coming from when they say a certain thing or, or feel a certain thing. And it's so easy to just say, oh, you, you think that you must be a bad person. I don't have anything in common with you. I'm not going to even talk to you because you don't understand anything. And I'm a little bit cleverer than you are. And then we, we can just stop here. But I just don't believe that. And now I had an amazing opportunity to travel a lot. I was in China last week. Uh, before that, I was in Dubai. Um, and you just meet loads of people, very, very different people. And every time you sit down, and particularly when you talk about children, people's eyes light up, and we all have something in common. And sometimes I actually feel that that is a bridge between people, that we want to do something for children. Um, and this is becoming a bit of a long answer, but I really feel that that labeling of other people, calling them something, is something that we do, and it's so harmful for having a conversation. It's remarkably um, well said and so apparent from your life that that's been the spark that's kept you in the arena. I think, while I'm listening to you though, I think, yes, but Assad was a normal guy. How do you live on the world stage, work on the world stage with a normal dentist who turns into a murderous dictator. <laughs> That's like a thing that happened. Yeah. And then maintain your faith in what you just said, that, that, that curious space in between or that people yeah. are good and that the work will lead to I don't necessarily think create. people are good, but I think there are, there are a lot of good people out there. Mm. There's a lot of good people. And often when you sit in a room like this, and I, I've been in a room like this with many different people across the world, and I just find a lot of good thinking, a lot of compassion, a lot of uh, a moral compass, which is there for a lot of people. 
People often say, oh, what do we need the UN for, talking shop, and what decisions do they take, and have they done anything in Syria? But imagine a world where we didn't have any of these fora where we came together and were forced to sit with people that we didn't agree with. It is so easy to be in a room where you agree with everyone. It is the easiest thing in the world. Oh, so comfortable, so nice, and oh, you're so nice, and we can have such a lovely conversation. But where it really makes a difference if you get, you, you're brought a little bit out of your comfort zone and have to meet people that you don't actually agree with, have to try to understand them. That's why I'm such a strong believer in multilateral organizations, the EU um, and uh, the UN, because I strongly believe that that is where you, you really learn something and can move the world. So I still believe mm -hmm. in that. Mm -hmm. Are there enough, uh, a lot of problems? There certainly are every day in my life as CEO of Save Children, I hear about the most horrendous things. But to lose hope that we can try to change a thing about it and to think that you can change things without speaking to people you disagree with, that is not the right path. You have to understand that every time you have to create a peace somewhere, you have to speak to someone that you almost hate in the beginning of the conversation. Look at the Northern Ireland Agreement, which is now actually, I hope, still stands but the northern uh, the good friday agreements uh, some years back that was people who had actually killed each other uh, had to sit together and find an agreement it worked so there are good things that happen still hello i, I think i speak on behalf of everyone with with so much gratitude that you came to speak to us today and we look forward to you being the next prime minister of australia <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much thank you. Thank you so much for joining us again for Dumbo Feather Live. This edited conversation of the original event was produced by Beth Gibson and me, Jane Nethercote. The music you hear is by Dennis Liu. To hear more about School of Life events, head to theschooloflife.com. And for information about Save the Children's great work, go to savethechildren.net. Stay tuned for next month's conversation or hear it first by subscribing to the Dumbo Feather podcast on your favourite pod channel. For more conversations with extraordinary people, subscribe to Dumbo Feather magazine at dumbofeather.com. We deliver worldwide. Mm -hmm.